Welcome to Pop Unlock. I'm Landry Ayers. And I'm Natalie Dalzicki. From the oblong spaceships of arrival, across the dusty landscapes of Sicario, to the towering pyramids of Blade Runner 2049, all of Denis Villeneuve's work has led us to this moment. While the expectations are high, we must not fear, for fear is the mind killer. Joining us to discuss the long-awaited 2021 film adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune, our director of the Cato Institute's Project on Emerging Technologies, Matthew Feeney. Hi there. And policy analyst from Washington, D.C. and Dune superfan, Caleb Watney. Thanks for having me. Happy to discuss. All right. So as Landry hinted at, there was so much anxiety and expectations over the release of this film. I'm going to be completely honest. I had, and this was intentional, I had no clue what the story was about. I ha- I knew that the, uh, I knew these stories existed. I knew there were a lot of books. I knew the books were very long. I had no idea other than that, which made it a great experience to watch. Um, but I'm curious. I think we should put our markers in the sand. And I want to know, Caleb and Matthew, did this film live up to the expectations? I would say definitely. It definitely lived up to the expectation with the sort of big caveat that this is only half the story. Uh, I think if, I don't know that the marketing material was particularly clear that this was only the first half of the story. And so I do know some people who uh, just went into it expecting it to be the full tale of Dune and then, you know, sort of looking at the runtime and being like, huh, there's no way we're going to be able to get through the rest of the material, right? Um, but yeah, I, I would say for the first half and for what it was trying to achieve, it really, I think, surpassed my expectations. And I and I had very high expectations going in. Yes, I, I agree with that. Um, it's difficult to approach something like this when you've been a fan of the, the books for so long, because, you know, uh, or, you know, listeners should keep in mind that now I think the whole Dune franchise encompasses almost 30 books, more than two dozen. Uh, Frank Herbert, the author of Dune, wrote six originals, and this is a movie of half of the first book. So you're in a, a, a situation where, um, you know, people like like me who who uh, I you know, read the book when they were young. I um, certainly had high expectations. Uh, the 1984 film, which was the first like on-screen attempt at an adaptation, I really just don't think does justice to the source material. Uh, the sci-fi miniseries, I think, did a slightly better job. But my overwhelming feeling watching this film was that it just got Dune. Um, the feel of it, um, in, in a way that past adaptations just haven't. I was struck in particular by the devotion to the source material that uh, Villeneuve brought to it because uh, it has it historically been considered, if not extremely hard to film, sometimes impossible to film or, or put to tape or, or, or something like that. Um, but Villeneuve actually did a very, very good job without I wouldn't say without sacrificing anything because there are so, so many things that are contained in the source material that you simply just could not capture in the narrative frame of Dune. So much of the significance and the stakes of the story are things that are in uh, appendices or the sort of pre-chapter uh, segments that are are told through Princess Irulan's sort of uh, speaking uh, moments and things like that. But 
there was n- there weren't any distinct changes I felt that he made where he was like, I need to completely remove or alter something in order to make this fit the form that I want to prevent. And and that's something that I think is really good because when you look at another sort of famous attempt at adapting this film, uh, which actually did not come to fruition and in doing so paved the way for science fiction as a genre and film, we can look at Jodorowsky's Dune. Um, he in particular is famous for being very particular with his vision. He... Uh, brought in a lot of artists to sort of bring in their own flair, but he very much wanted it to be his Dune, his story. The story was going to be slightly altered from Herbert, um, and it had his sort of weird El Topo sort of flair to everything. Um, And I I thought of that specifically because uh, there's a line that the Baron Harkonnen says uh, after the Reverend Mother has left the sort of cone of silence where, which as far as I know, when I looked it up, does not exist in the book. He says, uh, Arrakis is Arrakis, the desert takes the weak, uh, my Arrakis, my dune. And it was sort of this, it, it sort of plays with the idea that this greed-fueled, person is taking Dune and making it what he wants to be, harvesting the spice, which we know to be the the real moneymaker here, and using it for his ends, while Villeneuve and consequently House Atreides are portrayed as someone who is respecting the uh, resources that are already there and trying to cultivate a relationship with the people who love it. Uh, while still bringing his own type of rulership to it. I think it's a good comp, actually. And I was really excited when I saw that Villeneuve was uh, the director. I had just finished watching, I think, Blade Runner 2049 when I, I saw the news. And it just seemed like a really perfect choice in that like, so much of what people loved about the original Dune was like less the the character arc or even the plot like in some ways those things feel a little bit cliched not because they were at the time but because so many other things have built on top of it Uh, but i think the thing that's really kind of stuck around over time has been the world building and just the atmosphere it feels like you're dropped into this alien world and uh you really have to you know pick up all these new terms and all these things as you're you know making your way through the first hundred pages or so um and so, yeah, getting that sort of like atmosphere, I think, was like the single most important thing. I was like sort of afraid of getting messed up with a new Dune movie. And Villeneuve, that's just like what he's so good at. You know, you you watch Blade Runner 2049, you watch uh, Arrival, and you're just like, some people, you know, I think uh, can maybe rightfully char- or criticize his like characterization of like how deep are the emotional relationships uh, that he has in some of his previous movies. But if, if there's one thing he can get right, it's, it's a sense of like world building and atmosphere and also very wide pan shots of giant spaceships uh, arriving and taking off, which is, you know, half the half the, the appeal here. I think that's uh, that's right, because. I, I had a similar feeling. I remember walking um, out of um, Blade Runner 2049 and feeling pretty reassured um, as a Dune fan. Uh, I I will say, I mean, something that I was very interested in going into it is thinking about the betrayal of the setting because, I mean, crucially, especially like the first book and I, I think the film, um, it's not the case that I think the setting is a character. Like, I think that's a little too simplistic, but the 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 novel really is about change. Like how much 
people can influence their environment, how much choice they really have in their lives. Uh, there's a lot of hinting at you know Paul's prescience, right? Especially when he surround uh, when he gets into the spice, the um, the impact that this um, you know crucial substance has on his mind. But uh, you know, those you know people who know the story of you know the, the series more broadly know I, I think that. Um, Herbert wrote the series in large part um, to, to emphasize the theme of change, and he was he was motivated to write the novel um, to, while covering you know, uh, sand dunes in Oregon for I think some kind of environmental newspaper article or something. You know, he um, this was and and so for for Herbert uh, the the setting is is crucial, and um, you know when you when you hear Baron Harkonnen say you know my dune. Uh, I hope the audience comes away with a sense of, you know, his arrogance, right? That um, that change is easy and control is easy. I'm curious what you were thought, Natalie, because I believe as far as I know, the other three of us have all read the novel, if not uh, much more of the series. But you came in, like you said, you came in blind to this. What were you expecting? What did you get? And was there anything that you felt was missing or done particularly well uh so they're all bucket into two different parts i think the my like impression going away as it being like entertaining like i thought the movie was very entertaining as well as like a masterpiece like art wise and i think it did uh especially afterwards learning like how much more to to the Dune uh, universe there is. I think it did a particularly good job of not being too heavy-handed and explaining, like, where where things are, who who's related to who. They, there was a lot more nuance, which I appreciated. We didn't have... There was some narration, which I guess we can talk about later, that the narration in the movie is done by a different character um, than the books. And um, I think... The kind of the holes for me, and I, I was literally just about to say this was so we're set in the future, and I would love an explanation how like the future looks so vastly different than like uh, like other like future movies. Like it looks it looks very like Mad Maxy, right? Like desert, and like I'm and I'm also thinking that's a factor of like the time period in which this book was written, and we've talked about this. Um, on the show before about like how science fiction reflects the like current pessimism or optimism in which the time period it's written in. Um, and also another big thing, like I, I don't know if I was the only one sitting there like wondering why they didn't have computers or wondering why they didn't have guns. Like I, I was like, why are we why are there swords that have shields with all these like cool technologies? But then we like lost something that like our current world has. Um, so those are, I don't know if those are necessarily like plot holes, but more so like me questioning, like how we got here. You know what I mean? I, I can answer one of those questions, Natalie. And it it's that, sh- uh, swords are just way cooler. <laughs> I mean, I think that's pretty like, much the answer. I was ready for to pop that, out a lightsaber. Like I was like, oh, yeah, I think like Herbert that? basically was, has, you know, he comes from this sort of, this sort of melding of high fantasy in science fiction and sort of pulp novels that was going on when he was writing it at the time. And he wasn't alone in that. That was the sort of common trend and the the sort of kinetic shields that they all wear that sort of mimic um, the and, and sort of would basically the way the shields function is that if you would be shot with a bullet, it can 
create enough kinetic energy to match what the bullet would do and block it off because, you know, high velocity, you're going to have a high reaction. But with a sword, it's moving slower. And so the, the shield doesn't work as well. But it's really just a sort of narrative conceit to make it so that you guys, you can have sword fights, which are just inherently cooler. And I will die on this hill. <laughs> well, I think that's right. Uh, there's um, a, a big sense in which Herbert's trying to draw the audience into something that may be familiar to, to fantasy readers, right? Uh, it's said in the future, but there are dukes and there are barons and there's an emperor uh, and there are witches. And there's, you know, religion plays a, a massive role here. Uh, and I, a lot of people might think of this as kind of jarring, right? That you're reading something about science fiction, but this it might as well be about, I don't know, medieval France or something. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I mean, to, to one of Natalie's questions, um, you know, this isn't explained in the movie, but I don't think it suffers because of it. But Dune is set about, I think, you know, 10,000 years after a massive war called the, um, the Butlerian Jihad, where the humans beat the machines. And there is, um, you know, a... Uh, uh, um, imperial a ban across the empire on thinking machines and the um, I think it's called you know the Orange Catholic Bible right prohibits the the building of machines um, in the um, in the image of a human mind uh, you know as, as a technology policy analyst you sort of twinge at this and think uh, you right. know <laughs> I don't know if pocket calculators are really that bad uh, but it does give you know it does give rise to um, the Mentats uh, and I think one of the the interesting uh, parts of the film. Uh, was just sort of dropping the audience into this with the eyes rolling backwards to do quick calculations, and I guess the audience is supposed to just um, pick up on it. Uh, you know, there, I did there not are, pick up on that. Right, I just learned that. Sure. So um, <laughs> there's, you know, the the characters with the lip tattoos, the the mentats who are, you know, bred as human computers, uh, function uh, play an important role in in the universe, um, and I I think. What we have to keep in mind is also, you know, something I think Natalie mentioned earlier is the setting of, or, or the time in which Herbert wrote the book. Uh, this is, you know, I think only a few years after the Asimov Foundation series, uh, uh, which are asking similar kind of questions, right? Which is uh, talking about how do you govern a massive galactic empire? Uh, what kind of institutions fail? Uh, what do you do with people who know the future or have good ideas about what it will look like? Uh, and yeah, Dune and Foundation come to very different answers to those kinds of questions. Uh, yeah, just to expand on the the Butlerian Jihad point, I think it's it's one interesting as kind of a storytelling convention that there's a lot of sci-fi writers who want to tell stories about the far future. But if you allow like super intelligent AI to become a major part of your story, it just like it's a so much harder to predict what the world looks like 10, 20, 30,000 years in the future when you've had advanced uh, AI. Like there's something grounding about a story that you can tell when humans are the primary actors. And if, you know, everything was happening on, on microseconds as various AIs were clashing with each other, like that might make a, a less compelling narrative. And so it's interesting to me that a lot of AI or a lot of science fiction writers, when they're trying to tell stories about the far future, um, end up like either it's like post-apocalyptic and so you know there's no computers because of that reason or there's you know some convention like the Balerian jihad where uh you know ai has sort of been ridding out of the story because it's just i think inherently a pretty hard um like technological force to write about because it is this sort of like all-consuming thing if it really does you know become super intelligent in some sense um the other interesting thing is that in some sense is very uh 
it, it's coming at like a good time. I feel like uh, AI safety, uh, you know, within like certain sects of the scholarly community has become like a bigger and bigger issue over the last five to 10 years. There's more like very serious concern by very serious people um, about sort of, you know, long run concerns about AI alignment. And so I think it's sort of, you know, interesting to have this 19, you know, 60s adapt adaptation and sort of warning in some sense in the background about, uh, you know, AI super intelligence run amok and then, um, it's coming at an interesting time, I guess, as as those concerns are becoming uh, greater. I do. Uh, I, I think that's very well put, and uh, I, I hope that the the lack of the machines in the film doesn't put you know a traditional uh, sci fi like audience off. Um, one of the things is that that I think there there are a couple of things if you've read the book that are notable by that absence. So as as Landry mentioned. Um, Something there's there's no mention of Princess Irulan. Uh, you never see the Emperor, uh, and I think one of the early um, film adaptations, the 1984 film, really um, suffered because it stuck too closely to the book, where it opens with Princess Irulan sort of narrating, uh, and then it also does the voice, and and something that you know, um, or the voices um, in people's heads. So if you read the book, you'll notice there's a lot of personal narration from the characters, and. Um, Lynch uh, in in the movie decides you know what would be great we'll just do a voiceover and it, it just is is awful uh, and it doesn't really work well uh, <laughs> but there are other things um, I thought it was odd that we never got a good look at the 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 space the the navigators uh, which in um, again I don't know if Villeneuve just didn't want to I just freak out a new audience too much but you know you have to envision a giant canister full of space gas with people you know navigators who've been mutated into looking kind of like fish. And their job is to fold space. Yeah, I mean, it's all um, maybe dropping people in the deep end a little bit. Um, although I do think in um, when the there's that scene on Caladan where the representatives from the Empire come down and there are these people with uh, the helmets that's filled with orange gas and you can sort of see the blue eyes. And I, I guess they're supposed to be the navigators, but then the representative says, no, they're representatives from the Spacing Guild. So I'm looking forward to if these go ahead to see what Villeneuve does eventually do with the, the navigators. But uh, we'll see. I do have a spiced question. Um, so is there in the book, is there any more context as to why spice becomes like the end all be all for natural resources? Well, basically, I mean, in a very, very summed up uh, sense, what what Feeney has just said is basically it. The navigators of the Spacing Guild, so the people that maintain and run interstellar travel, which is hugely important because now human populations live all throughout the universe and galaxy, not just on Earth. And because of this huge diaspora that has formed and, and populated all these different planets, they have to get from place to place efficiently and safely. And space is really scary and really dangerous still. Right. <laughs> um, and so Spice itself, they, they don't explain this, but it's hinted at, like Feeney was saying, where you get this sort of prescience and it acts almost like a drug and it's a religious symbol. <laughs> Basically, you can, uh, spoilers for anyone who is, who is, you know, not wanting to figure out exactly how Spice works. Um, you can basically see the future and throughout time if you ingest enough spice. So they, you know, it's in a lot of adaptations, it's considered that they like fold space. But I think in the book, it, it basically throughout the series, I think towards the, the sort of later portions, it's explained that they basically it just gives them the ability to see 
far enough into the future in space travel that they can safely navigate ships to and from planets like oh we're going to hit a neutron star here we're going to hit a black hole if we go this way so the the spacing guild navigators take this this spice that is only found on arrakis and basically are they help make sure that this interstellar empire can actually function and and work together okay so in the movie i was thinking that it it like served as like like they were shoveling spice like into a spaceship and that's like how an they end, got like, like coal you put into the scene <laughs> yeah, <engine>. like, <laughs> yeah it does yeah which is a shame because uh, the the i'll give something to the the um the lynch film and the sci-fi miniseries do show the navigators right and in these orange spice filled canisters um i mean i, I think landry's last uh, explanation does raise a, a question um, of interest to libertarians, which is, okay, so we have a resource that is essential to civilization, and without it, we're really screwed. Um, and it is only found in one place. And the next thing just doesn't make sense from a sort of like political economy point of view, which is, so what we should do is we should have a hereditary emperor just decide like <laughs> that a particular family gets a monopoly on this and we just hope it works out. It seems like a really right. inefficient um, way to do it. But again, it's, you know, don't want to take it too seriously. It's a, you know, a sci-fi novel, but the, the sort of policy analyst in my head, you know, alarm bells ring when you think, you know, this really seems like a terrible way to efficiently, you know, uh, distribute this essential resource. One thing I've always wondered, and again, I like a bit of a, a minor spoiler, but it's it sort of revealed in the, the second half of the first book that um, the spice is produced by the sandworms. Um, and so I've always wondered if you were to take the sandworms onto, presumably there are other planets that have deserts on them. If you were to, you know, t- uh, transport some of the, these uh, little baby sandworms into another desert, could you then like double or triple or quadruple, you know, spice production on many other planets? Um, well, there, there is one of the novels, um, I think, I, I, I don't if it's Frank Herbert or his son, but they basically nip that in the bud by saying, yeah, they tried it. It just doesn't work. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, which is an easy out, I suppose. But no, that is the natural thing you would think, right? Which is, well, what's so special about Arrakis? And the answer is, it's Arrakis. Which is interesting because there is the idea that intervention in ecology is something that can through long-term sort of scale with like deep time thinking can actually create, you know, real change, which is what we get just a taste of in the film when we see the plants all growing in the siege that uh, Dr. Kynes passes by that that Duncan finds. Uh, and, and once again, a spoiler, you basically understand that um, over, you know, thousands of years, the Fremen through you know various manipulations of their religion by the Bene Gesserit who say that a path has been laid, um, have, have done all of these things to basically ensure that if they can get, I think it's 3% of Dune with like free-flowing water, that in, I think, 300 years, it can create a self-sustaining ecosystem that will produce water and turn the planet into something that has rivers and oceans and things like that, which does raise a lot of questions about, you know, a, a lot of, you know, things that we've learned about ecology, whether that's actually the best thing for the planet. But I am not a planetologist, so I, I can't vouch for that. But uh, <laughs> it, it does sort of raise interesting questions about justifications for human interventions and sort of engineering like 
benevolent climate change. It's also interesting because the Fremen clearly have this like religious sense of like fervor or respect for the sandworms, but like in also their sort of very religious uh, sort of like quest to remake the planet, uh, like that would inadvertently end up killing a lot of the the sandworms. And maybe they just don't like quite realize that, but yeah, there, there's sort of a tension in these like dual religious uh, feelings they have of, of reverence towards the sandworms, but then also this like idealistic, Edenistic vision of what they can turn the planet into. Yeah, a big uh, tension in, in, in this ambition is, you know, uh, water is poisonous to sandworms. And um, yeah, I, I guess I suppose minor spoiler, but the, the, the liquid that sandworms expel um, when they die um, seems to be a, a good source for the mother of all trips, right? Um, and it's something that can um, uh, accelerate, um, I suppose, you know, psychic abilities. Uh, and, and, you know, something that, that I left the film with was this um, appreciation for how much effort went into this book that I, you know, that I've loved um, since I first read it. Uh, but I also um, worry that so much of this just seems so unconventional to most um, sci-fi audiences that uh, there won't be enough juice for sequels or anything else. Uh, because look, we should keep in mind, you know, th- there's enough source material here to make um, Lord of the Rings look like a 20 minute episode of something. <laughs> right. Uh, but I just don't know if the the studio I, the, the numbers are good so far, and I'm sure they'll greenlight the sequel, but whether this will actually spark a, a revolution in Dune appreciation, I don't know. I just still think it um, just remains very alien to what I think a lot of people expect from science fiction. Well, and I think one of the parts we haven't hit on as much um, and is a little bit alien to, like, I would say, like, a more so general modern audience is, like, uh, the Bene Gesserit and, like, their form of religion. Um, and which was super interesting to me because, like, again, didn't I had no context to that this was like part of the film. Um, so it's like it's an organized religion, but not in the way that like we conceive of religion today. And then I also throughout the film was, uh, I think I got this right that, um, they're they've been taking like thousands of years to like carefully breed the correct people in order to like get a superhero essentially, um, which just sounds like Paul is the result of eugenics, kind of. Um, and I don't know if I, I don't yeah. know if I'm. Yeah. OK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I also thought it was interesting because it was like it's obviously like a woman only organization or religion. And but their superhero being is has to be a male. Well, the, the, the important thing, I think, uh, and again, not really explained in the movie, but Bene Gesserits have this uh, ability to tap into what's referred to as like genetic memory, right? But it's only matrilineal. So they don't have um, input from the father. And, uh, you know, a, an important plot, uh, and this was actually mentioned in the movie, an important element of the plot, right, is that Jessica was supposed to give um, Duke Leto a, a daughter. And that daughter was supposed to marry a Harkonnen. And the product of that union was supposed to be the Kwisak Haderach, this, you know, superhuman that you've mentioned. Uh, but yeah, Jessica falls in love with the Duke and Duke really wants a boy. So Jessica gives um, gives him Paul, who becomes the main character of, of the novel. Uh, and you can see in the in the film that um, the, the Bene Gesserit and the Reverend Mother, um, especially, is very concerned that 
Jessica's been teaching Paul, you know, the voice and a lot of these Bene Gesserit skills, because the Kwisak Haderach is supposed to be raised in a, in a pretty controlled environment, not sort of let loose on the universe. Uh, and I think I should probably shut up there because there's, there's a pretty significant spoilers if I keep on talking. Uh, but yes, no, it, it is very interesting, though, this um, religious element of it. You know, religion is a huge part of um, the film. Uh, and one of my favorite scenes, which I wasn't expecting, is when they arrive on Arrakis, when the Atreides arrive on Arrakis, there's all of these Fremen calling out uh, to Paul because they recognize him as a messiah that's been promised by centuries of Bene Gesserit trying to manipulate local cultures into expecting him. And again, the sort of like policy analyst in me thinks, I don't know, religion's like a really hard thing to plan that well, <laughs> right? That you can really guide yeah. <laughs> um, guide people into thinking that. But again, it might just be something you just have to swallow as potentially somewhat unrealistic, but, but I think makes for a great plot element. Insofar as the Bene Gesserit are able to do it specifically, it does seem like a lot of their powers or ability like as a guild is in like human manipulation, right? Like the voice is very much like this almost very well timed. Like a lot of it's about the the direct pitch at which you're talking at and how that like affects their physiology or something. So uh, I think if any, um, you know, uh, guild or, or subset of the universe was going to be able to, you know, very uh, deliberately and intentionally plant new religious fervor, it would have to be a group that has like this deep understanding of human psychology like the, uh, like the Bene Gesserit do. Yeah, and the Bene Gesserit, specifically as this sort of religious order that I, I, I don't know if this is true, but their name always reminded me like it was sort of a, like a, a bastardization of Jesuits. So it's sort of this like all female, like uh, sort of wise religious order that is, you know, functioning throughout the universe. Um, but the thing that always stuck out to me is that they are extremely important and respected, but also not trusted. Um, right. So they're considered and they're they're called witches, but they are, you know, it, it is a status symbol to have a, uh, a sister of the Bene Gesserit in your household. So that's why Lady Jessica is the sort of the, the, the main concubine that is with Duke Leto and why the, the Reverend Mother is allowed and they have such sway with the emperor and things like that. And it's because they have that ability to command people, but also to sense truth through things that they can and uh, sort of when they interact with people in interpersonal ways that they can sort of sense when people are being dishonest and almost read body language and tone of voice while also manipulating their own and recognizing something that they call petite betrayals, um, sort of ways that you give yourself away and and let things slide and that the, the Bene Gesserit can sort of pounce on that and manipulate it um, in order to achieve their end. Um, and this sort of myth of Lisan al-Gaib is is sort of tied up in in those abilities that you find out later on. Uh, and, and that scene that you mentioned, Matthew, was really interesting because it's mentioned in the book by Princess Irulan, it, it like in passing, but we don't actually see it happen, I don't think. Uh, it's sort of like they reflect on it as if like, uh, they like they say like and they landed on Arrakis and then the next scene is them inside and they reference the people calling out to Paul but I don't know if we actually see it happen but when they describe it they don't they the in the book they say Lisan al Gaib but they say the people actually call out Mahdi M A H D I um, which is a sort of interesting. Um, I, I I don't remember exactly what it means, but I think it's a, a derived from an Arabic word or is an Arabic word. But uh, it's actually 
I think, a reference to the Mahdi uprising, which happened in Sudan, South Sudan, in like the 1880s, which was this uh, sort of uh, revolution that tried to occur where the, the South Sudanese uh, Islamic community tried to overthrow these colonial oppressors uh, at the time. And so I wonder if them pointing and saying Mahdi is less about them trying to recognize the prophecy that they've been foretold of this savior and if it's much more a sort of political calling out that's saying this person not necessarily being a religious savior but being a political person who would help them sort of overthrow the yoke of their oppressors the the new ones who have arrived to to sort of keep them under their boot uh, that they've been living under with the harkonnens and now what they see as house atreides yes uh, uh, um something that the the discussion of Bene Gesserit reminded me that I um, I think when I first read the novel, I was discussing it with my father who teaches Latin and he seemed to think like Bene Gesserit means something in Latin, right? Like um, translating something like he will manage well or carry well, behave well or something like that, which is kind of a hint. Uh, but Herbert's interest in language extends far beyond Latin. I mean, Arabic is clearly a, a massive influence uh, but also ancient Greek, you know, Atreides, Atreus is, is you know, not exactly subtle. Uh, there are a ton of um, plays on language. Um, but also, again, things that are, this is the first time I, the things that are left out are really crucial. I, I thought it was amazing that we went uh, an entire, almost three hours of a Dune movie and the words Muad'Dib were not mentioned once. Right. Um, there's kind of a hint at it with the little, the sand mouse that hops up and cleans, you know, wipes the dew from its ears. Uh, I guess it's kind of like a, an Easter egg for the people who have read the book. Uh, but it, it is amazing that the main character of the novel is not really mentioned in the first movie in that way. One interesting thing, uh, when I, I reflect on sort of like major differences between uh, the book and the movie is maybe like the inversion of what's shown and not told. Um, so like in, uh, the movie, they don't tell you about the men tats like they do in the book. They just sort of, you know, drop you in it. They have the little lip tattoo and their eyes roll back in their head. It's like sort of a, a fun Easter egg for the people that, uh, have read the book, but they're not going to like over explain it. I think that's probably a good choice. Um, and they do that like a few other times as well. Um, but in the book, some of the things that they really like expand on that are very explicit in the movie is some of the interesting, like political intrigue behind the scenes. Um, it's, you know, the, in the book, you have this whole subplot of who is the traitor uh, within the house of Atreides and the Harkonnens are, you know, playing different um, sides off of each other. Uh, they get the, the Mentat Tufer Hawat to think that it's Jessica. Um, and in the movie, it's just like, oh, OK, uh, I guess it was the doctor. Um, and they don't really go into too much more detail beyond that. And I, it's probably makes sense. It was already, you know, two and a half hours for the first half of the film. They couldn't have done a, I mean, it maybe would have been a little bit excessive to do an additional, you know, 30 minute subplot of who is the traitor. But I thought that was interesting. Another um, sort of thing that has a lot more ambiguity in the novels that is much more explicit in the book is um, the the fact that the emperor is backing the Harkonnens and in the way in which he's backing it. I think uh, the Atreides in the book um, there's just, just like much more uncertainty of like, what is the emperor's role in this? How is he playing it? What are the emperor's goals? And I, I think in, in, in the, the movie, it's just much more straightforward that he hates the, the Atreides because he's too popular in amongst the great houses. He's going to send the Sardaukar. Um, and so, yeah, I, I thought that that inversion of what is shown versus told in the books versus the movies was uh, an interesting clip. I can't help 
but watch this movie specifically because of when it was released in a post-Afghanistan conflict context. So even though this was planned to be released prior to the, the formal withdrawal, I think I saw it like a week or so because where I live, it came out a little bit earlier. So uh, I was able to see it in theaters just a, a couple weeks earlier. Uh, so the the withdrawal had, I think, just been announced maybe a week before I went to go see it. Uh, and I think there's a lot of readings that sort of take this context into mind where it's, you know, and, and a lot of it is just like the spice is oil and, you know, America's coming in to be imperialist and it becomes very, very reductive. And while the book itself, you know, is not perfect and there is a lot of a lot of very heavy handed colonialism and some sort of like good colonizer characters there um, and a misunderstood and complex, but still coded as white savior trope, um, I do think it's really interesting to view this story in a post-Afghanistan lens. Um, and, and did that come into anyone else's mind when they were watching it? Like, specifically for me, when they land on Arrakis for the first time and they're remarking about the heat of the planet and how it's going to kill them all and all the people are getting up and, and sort of pointing at the planes, I, I just could not stop myself from thinking about that and and does that does that add anything to it for you it's interesting you had that um that thought i i didn't um but that might just because my my exposure to the film goes back way before um you know the, uh, us leaving afghanistan however i i think while watching the trailer i, I remembered thinking oh no like people who don't know the story are going to view this as a white people go to a desert to tame the natives sort of story. And uh, I was right. sort of scared that there would be that kind of cringe associated with it. However, there is a, a good part of the, no of the, of the film where I think some of those fears are somewhat alleviated, which again, uh, minor spoilers here for the, for the movie, but uh, Paul wins a duel with a Fremen um, who is challenging Stilgar um, basically and afterwards, uh, Jessica is calling on the Fremen to help them get off world, you know, either to go back to Caladan to sort of regroup. Uh, but Paul at that moment says, no, we're part of this world. Like we're here, you know, we are um, a part of Arrakis now. We're not really from Caladan anymore. And, you know, that's not really the approach that um, America and the coalition took when they went to Afghanistan. The goal was not to become Afghans, right. And to embody ourselves into the world. So, uh, and of course, the, the the whole rest of the book is about um, Paul changing in a number of ways, but most crucially, you know, becoming a leader among the Fremen and uh, you know, fighting fighting the Harkonnen. Uh, but certainly, I think if you watch the first film with no context whatsoever and you're not paying close attention, I think you could be forgiven for um, coming to that sort of conclusion if you came in with certain um predispositions uh, but i don't think it's the right way to to view the movie i think that's right I, I think it's also interesting to kind of uh view a lot of uh the duke leto's um statements as he's like coming into arrakis like when he uh, is accepting the charge to take ownership of arrakis he sort of says you know confidently we will bring peace to arrakis and it's very ironic uh, if you are familiar with the books or you know what's going to happen in fact he ushers in this whole new era of war 
Um, and so I, I think sort of, yeah, the, the deep irony and almost lampshading of, of some of those those contexts um, sort of, I think, downplays the like good colonizer uh, narrative because, you know, as for, for as good, you know, motivations as Leto came in with, you know, he, he ultimately does not achieve any of his goals uh, and is really, I think, taken advantage of. And keep in mind, there's uh, that, that that's all very well said. Um, there's there's a moment in the film where Stilgar, the leader of um, you know the Fremen, comes in and uh, expresses, "Look, that the the Harkonnen were barbarians and treated the Fremen really poorly." And Leto says, "Look, you know, I'm different. I'm going to treat you um, differently." And Stilgar even then still says, "Look, just leave us alone. Like you can come and harvest the spice, and you can take it off world. Just leave us alone." Uh, and and so I think. You know, scenes like that really, I do think, shatter any analogy between um, the American intervention in Afghanistan and what the Atreides are doing on Arrakis. Uh, and I think the filmmakers' hands are somewhat tied here. You know, there, there are certain changes you can make. Okay, so I thought a very interesting change that I think worked well was, for example, making Dr. Kane's uh, a woman. I think worked really well, and that was fine. Uh, but there are, you know, physical descriptions of the place and of the people that. Um, are difficult for the filmmaker to exit if they're trying to avoid these kind of um, analyses. It is a film set in a desert, um, and the people who are native to that region are going to adapt in desert ways in their their costume uh, and and other such things. So th- there's only so much I think filmmakers can do there. It's interesting though that both I think the the book and the the movie end up having this very sort of like you could almost call like Islamophilic. Um, sort of like uh, atmosphere and aesthetic. I mean, in some sense, the the deep message of the book is that like uh, actually the Fremen are by far the best fighters in the entire universe. And unless you're extremely careful, they're going to just take over everything because that's like how badass they are in some sense. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the movie definitely, I guess, you, you couldn't say in some sense, like they are not currently in control and maybe they need like new leadership and maybe there's some, you know, colonizer white saber narratives there. But like the, the inherent strength of the people is, is what Leto originally comes to the planet for. Um, and I guess that was another difference maybe between the book and the movie. The, the book makes much more clear that like Leto really recognizes um, the, the strength of the emperors and the Sardaukar, the, these elite warriors that have, have grown up in this harsh environment on Seleucus Secundus and that like nobody in the Imperium has quite put together the potential of, of uh, the Fremen um, on this desert planet to potentially challenge the emperor. It's sort of implicit, but it's not quite as explicit as in the book. Yeah, and I would just add on on this topic. I think I was I was a little concerned when in like the opening ten minutes, like you have um, Zendaya has the like narration in the beginning, and as she ends it with like who will be our new oppressors, and like I had already seen like the um, trailer for the movie, and I obviously knew that Timothy Chalamet was in it, and I knew he played a big role, and I was a, a little bit concerned that it was going to turn into like a either a white savior or like. Um, kind of not not be as nuanced. And I think there was a lot more nuance to the film than like some, like because a lot of rev- some reviews I was reading yesterday in, the, in preparation for this were just kind of boiling it down to white savior, which I think is not necessarily fair to the film um, because I think there's a lot more nuance. And also I like picked up very like early on that no one, no one was like necessarily going to Arrakis to help the Fremen. Um, if that makes sense, like they like it was all about spice and about like taking over that resource and the Fremen were also there. But it was not it was never at least the way I saw it, it was never that like House Atreides was going in order to help the Fremen from the Harkonnen. 
Right. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, it, there wasn't like that, um, um, paternal or paternal or like there wasn't that like heavy handed like they need us in order to succeed on their planet right i i mean i think you could i and i think people have made the argument a lot that like sure and that's that's what we said going to afghanistan or or iraq or something but you know really that it was about like resource manipulation and and the truth of that is obviously you know much more tenuous than than that take would would sort of lend itself to and i think it's interesting that I, i mean i think the where the movie falls into the white savior tropes is is not even necessarily with paul um while it kind of is coded like that in this first part I think to really see if it falls into that trap, which I'm not saying that it will, it it takes the second half to really sort of button that shut. Because really what Paul sees and his sort of prescience and his visions is what he calls his terrible purpose. He doesn't go in blindly thinking like, I'm going to save all these people. I'm going to become a leader and do all of this stuff. He knows that like terrible things are going to have to occur and that maybe perhaps in the future – through years and years of bloodshed, maybe something will happen and he'll be able to help the Fremen. But it, it is not it is not as cut and dry as the white savior trope label tends to get bandied around about. Uh, and, and I do see a lot of that in the initial reactions, but I'm hoping that the second film addresses it uh, in a pretty more direct way, but also that people sense the nuance that is, you know, in the novel that is not perfect in the way that it treats, like like uh, Caleb said, this sort of Islamophilic, which can be taken with a grain of sand as both, you know, honorable, but also kind of uh, fetishized, you know, if it's, you know, taken in the wrong way. Um, but uh, but I I am very interested to see where that goes it's crucial to see how uh, well it's crucial for the second film right to finish off the first book yes um how they treat um paul's visions of the future and how he reacts to it all and you know something that's that uh you know, listeners who are interested in the books might want might be interested in is you know paul is not the main character of dune right it's it's not really about paul and uh the second book which is probably the worst of the original six. Like you kind of have to read because it's us all sort of taking Paul down a notch, right? And trying to emphasize um, his role in the whole thing. Uh, so I think the it would be a disaster if the second film was, you know, just about Paul being unambiguous in the goal, just trying to seek revenge for his family and just barging in and killing a bunch of Harkonnen. Um, that would be regrettable, but I also don't think it's likely. I, I think Villeneuve and um, the writers did uh, have demonstrated their um their love of the original source material and their their allegiance to it so i'm not too worried about that i think villeneuve has also said in in some interviews that in his ideal world he would be able to make this as a trilogy and have the story of dune messiah basically be the third one which would be very interesting because it's (laughs) it's such an inversion really of like the the classic like hero's tale that happens over the course of the first one and then yeah the the second and the third books really sort of twist or you you reinterpret the events that happen in book one in a very different light that still is like paying homage to it and still is important but like it's it's very different than it, it appears based on what happens later in the books yeah i will say i think it is a i don't know if it's intentional but it is a misleading marketing tactic i don't think this film was marketed in the best way i i don't know if they let enough people know that it was only going to be part one 
But I also don't know if people would be as interested if they knew it was only going to be part one, because I think a lot of people will be like, oh, it's another bloated Lord of the Rings, which granted, it's of that scale and it's that good. And Lord of the Rings is awesome. So it should be a trilogy, I think. But I don't know if audiences would react to it knowing that that's what they were getting into. But there's a trade off there that goes along where as soon as Dune part one flashes up on the screen, a lot of people went. Oh, uh, okay. Um, And then it drops you in a certain spot with so many unanswered questions at the end of this film that uh, I'm I'm interested to see where that goes. I I view the marketing of the film instrumentally insofar as it gets me the completed Dune movie that I want. Uh, It is good. And I and I will abide by some minor misdirection to get me there. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, yeah. I understand it. I just... uh, I, I I need it to happen. <laughs> I was just going to say, I've seen so many like funny memes and like gifts about like when people found out it just was part one and then they were like, and now we have to wait six years for part two or like something ridiculous like that. Well, keep an eye on the, uh, keep an eye on Amazon book sales of Dune because if, if, if this film does, oh, true. If, if this film does prompt a new interest in the books, people hopefully will realize, forget part one and part two. This is, you know, part um, that's one book of the original six, and there's a whole bunch more after that. You know, if you're a film um, studio looking at this, you might think, well, there's enough source material here for many, many films if you want to go that far. Uh, but I think given the initial um, takings from box office and HBO Max viewings, I think at least one more film seems a certainty. Uh, I agree yeah. that, you know, I I really don't think um, you've done justice to like at least the beginning of the story arc until you've got... Um, uh, again, minus spoilers. But anyway, um, what happens often too <laughs> um, would be a, a good place to get people because um, it's it's a worthwhile. I, I think there aren't enough stories these days about um, protagonists with this amount of complexity, right? Uh, and I know that sounds sort of snobbish and arrogant, but uh, it's, it's it's true though. Yeah, but it is nice to have a hundred percent true. It's it's nice to have a protagonist that takes hundreds and hundreds of pages to even develop really as a character after having a destiny that has been thousands of years in the making. Um, you know, it would be nice to see that um, done correctly, uh, but I guess we'll see. I wanted to go back just a, a little bit. We, we've mentioned a couple of times this uh, comparison to Lord of the Rings. And I actually think that uh, this Dune part one is like an underrated comp for it is the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, so for a while, they had the exact same like Rotten Tomatoes score, uh, which is like, <laughs> one interesting thing. I, I don't know if it does now, but at the time I took a Twitter screenshot, it was. So that's what really matters. <laughs> um, but I would say even the, the the genres of negative critiques are pretty similar. Like a lot of people are saying like, oh, if anything, it's like it's too faithful to the book. It's like too slow and plotting. They should have like been more straightforward and gotten to the plot or they didn't quite like where, you know, it left off the the overhang of the story and like, you know, you should have rearranged it differently, which are very similar to the kinds of, uh, you know, critiques you got of the Fellowship of the Ring. It's also similar in the sense that this is a story franchise that's been tried to make, tried to be made many, many times with many uh, prominent failures, and that almost you needed like a certain level of like technological sophistication to be able to tell the story in the first place and that we've kind of finally gotten there both with you know early 2001 we were just getting good enough and like cdi that you could make the armies look bigger than they actually were and uh here now you can have these really awesome you know uh spaceship shots and everything so it, it is just interesting to me how many sort of like um 
the analogies or comparisons there are between the two films in terms of their critical reception, in terms of where uh, they sort of start the story and potentially leave it off, um, in terms of how many people had tried to tell the story and failed before it. Um, so uh, I don't know. I hope that they can finish off the Dune franchise as well as they did the Lord of the Rings one. It's a real shame that we never got a Ralph Bakshi animated adaptation of Dune because I think it would have really just been the cherry on top of the cake. Add some songs, <laughs> some weird matte painting backgrounds, a bunch of strange stuff going on. It would have been great. It honestly would have fit. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, um, I don't know, I did a, a short Twitter thread after I saw the movie and I said, you know, maybe, um, Kayla's probably right, it's kind of like the Fellowship of the Ring, but this is kind of like if a studio had greenlit a Lord of the Rings movie and Peter Jackson had just made a movie that got up to them, to the Hobbits meeting Aragon. And then it wasn't clear if there were going to be right. follow-ups. <laughs> and the problem, the, 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 but then I think the analogy breaks down slightly because very early on in The Lord of the Rings, you know what the point of the story is. Like there is this ring and it's not great and it should probably be destroyed, so we should go destroy it. And will they succeed or not is the tension of the, the story. Um, but I think if, if someone like, I mean, maybe we could ask, but someone like Natalie who has no um, context outside of the movie you go up to them and say, so what's Dune about? I would forgive them for being, you know, for hearing a lot of different answers at this point, um, because the movie, I think, leaves a lot of things open-ended. Yeah, I have zero clue what the point, like, where, <laughs> where we're headed next is. Like, I thought I thought it was entertaining, and it was a good movie. But like, Even, I, even before we were watching it, na- I think that's what I said. I think Natalie was like, so what is this movie going to be about? And I was like, okay, <laughs> there's a sand that everybody smokes a ton of, and then there's giant worms and space war. And, and she like, was like, so- got it. <laughs> so to me, it was like Game of Thrones meets Star Wars. Without the dragons, but insert the sandworms. <laughs> but with no computers. Yeah. And no computers. <laughs> right. Game of Thrones, that famous computer-filled world. <laughs> it's funny, in some of the marketing material, um, I saw like some of the trailers, they were like including lines from, from uh, snippets of reviews. And, and I think one review said, this is the next Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, which is funny because Star Wars is, of course, very derivative of the original Dune. I was just going to say, like, when I when it first started and they were talking about, like, the voice and he's, like, trying to command the water at the table, I was like, this is just, he's just a Jedi. <laughs> it's like, it like Jedi mind tricks coming in already, coming in hot. Where George Lucas got those ideas. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And all of the designs for the xenomorph in Alien are just, like, cribbed from Giger's designs for the Harkonnens in the Jodorowsky uh, Dune. So, if you like Alien... You can thank Dune. <laughs> All sci-fi ever can be derived back to Dune. It's um, it's probably like modern sci-fi. It's Dune or Asimov, um, because this mm-hmm. came out um pretty soon. I think I need to. I'm probably going to get the dates mixed up, but I think Dune came out after Foundation, and. You know, I, I threw into you know the the notes that that all of us have before we record these things. That I do think it's interesting that Apple TVs foundation came out only a few weeks before dune came out and they're both very similar and and you can and might be a stretch but dune seems to be kind of an not an answer to foundation but taking those kind of questions and turning the answer in a different kind of way uh because they are both trying to deal with um va- the governance of vast empires and how that's a struggle 
and what do you do with people who claim to either predict disaster or know the future? Uh, and Asimov seems to have much more faith in, um, I don't know, academic institutions or um, scientists, uh, people who um, rely on logic. And Herbert's slightly more on the side of, you know what, like religions are weird and people are unpredictable and uh, you right. have to um, account for the fact that people don't always fulfill their destiny or they don't always behave as you think they will. Um, and that can lead to um, governance issues of their own. So it's interesting because I mean I won't get into any of the spoilers, but by by the time you get to God Emperor of Dune, it is kind of like this Isaac Asimov, like how do you actually shorten the length of like a dark age once you have a benevolent ruler who can potentially live for thousands of years or be able to control things for for thousands of years in advance? So um, I agree. Yeah, Dune Part One is like kind of a, a, an interesting different answer than Asimov, but by the time you get to God Emperor, they actually look kind of similar. Yeah. And you know, what if you can, you know, merge with worms and be a half-worm, half-human <laughs> king, you know? That's something I've never considered. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to keep in touch with us and get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by Natalie Dowzicki. We're a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. <laughs>